Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Today on Weather Geeks, we're talking trash, but this conversation doesn't have anything to do with your favorite sports team. We're taking a deep dive into our world's oceans with Dr. Jenna Jambeck of the University of Georgia to track down what happens to those plastics and other disposables we use on a daily basis. Is this problem just a matter of countries recycling more, or does the problem expand into the way we manage waste altogether? We'll answer these questions, plus we'll discuss exactly how these materials are entering our oceans and how these millions of metric tons of trash are affecting the world's ecosystems. It's all next on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, also from the University of Georgia. And Jenna, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And let me just start off before we really dive in to just say that I'm a really big fan of Dr. Jenna Jamback. She's really a great uh, colleague and she's changing the world. And I really believe that. I'm not just saying that to kind of inflate this topic here. This is a serious issue and I want to kind of dive into it. But first, tell us how you got into doing what you do. Yeah, that's a that's a question I get because um, I've been working in solid waste management, trash, rubbish, garbage, whatever you want to call it, for over 20 years. Um, and people ask, you know, why did you do that? And I have had an interest in the environment uh, since I was very young and went into environmental engineering. And in that space, and I also teach about drinking water treatment, wastewater treatment, and this integrated waste management approach. Um, when I took my class, so in college, my, my professor who taught my- Now, where'd, where'd you go to school? I went to the University of Florida. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> in that yeah. part, we're rivals. That's, that's right. <laughs> um, anyway, friendly rivals. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so, um, anyway, so I took this class and uh, I was just fascinated. The professor did a, did a wonderful job. He was very enthusiastic about the subject. And in Gainesville at the time, they were trying to cite a new landfill. And people were so passionate about their opinion about this new landfill, what we're going to do with our waste. And I thought about all the choices we make every day and how that actually impacts this whole system. So it wasn't just a design with, you know, pen and paper or at a computer with the AutoCAD. It was actually people and a really close involvement of those people. And to this day, that's why this field really fascinates me. Yeah, and so you've really kind of taken it and run with it. And by the way, I want to mention also that uh, Dr. Jambeck is a National Geographic Explorer. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about what that means and, and sure. what, what that's going to uh, imply for your research. Going yeah, forward. Um, so it's really exciting. So National Geographic has a, a campaign that they started um, and, and this is the Planet or Plastic campaign and their June issue focused on um, this, this topic. And we were featured in that along 
along with other scientists and researchers. And they also were giving out some grants. And so I was able to get a grant um, to become a National Geographic Explorer and do work in Vietnam with the independent and informal uh, waste management sector there. So millions of people around the world in other countries actually sort of informally or independently um, work managing waste. They're unrecognized, their working conditions are terrible, and we're, we're trying to understand how to improve that and their role in actually kind of managing the waste and keeping it out of our ocean, and, and can we scale that? Right. Now, as you were talking, a question comes to mind. Did you grow up as a child or perhaps in school or around an environmentally conscious family or... Yeah. Um, so so I grew up in a small town in Minnesota and nine miles out of that small town in a house that was actually supposed to be just a cabin. Um, but uh, my parents divorced when I was very young and my mom decided to live in that house. Um, but I saw my dad very often, too, and he ended up moving to Florida and he lived uh, right on the coast in southwest Florida. And so I had I grew up on a river in this tiny town outside all the time or in Florida, sort of on the coastline. And both of those things really built this environmental ethic uh, in any, my any, any, any science projects in your history along these lines? <sighs> Just curious, because I, I I did my early science project on weather, and that's kind of what, yeah, but uh, I imagine you were all yeah, over the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did. Well, no, I, I used to, my mom actually was like, I knew you were going to be a scientist um, because you, you would sit and just... Um, study things. And then I also remember taking this tiny pewter, I think it was my brother's baby dish and going into the bathroom and taking like talcum powder and perfumes and oh. luckily nothing toxic, but making all these little mixtures I, and I seeing what happened. And then like mud pies as outside and there, and I don't know why I thought, you know, just mixing and doing a lot of that was fascinating. I, I used to do the same thing. And by the way, we learned before the podcast that Dr. Jembeck and I have share a similar dislike for all things condiments like mayonnaise and mustard. That is true. Well, we digress. So I want to really get now into your study. So one of the interesting things about what you and your group, the Jamback Research Group at University of Georgia has been doing is uh, trying to track, or understand, or quantify how much waste is coming from the land mm -hmm. and into the oceans. First of all, tell us how that differs from how previous accounting of trash in the ocean or waste in the ocean has been and then why your study is important. Sure. Yeah. So historically, when this issue uh, first began to be studied, it was marine biologists and oceanographers, and they were going out into the ocean and seeing the plastic and then saying, Saying, oh, well, how much is here? So they started um, sampling the ocean surface and, you know, sampling different areas and finding plastic. What was different about the work that we were doing was saying how much is actually going in. Um, and we know that the sources from on land are significant. Luckily, it wasn't just me. I was a part of an international um, working group on this issue, too, out of um, NCs at UC Santa Barbara. So we had a lot of great minds on this. Um, and we knew that there are various sources on the land, but that our regular waste that we generate every single day is probably significant. And so we sort of went about quantifying that. And really, it's all about looking at countries all around the world that have a coastline and then the quantity of waste that's produced per person, um, the quantity of that that's plastic. And then from there, we look at um, how waste is really managed there or mismanaged. There may be inadequate facilities for actually managing waste, or you have people that just litter. So both of those things end up with waste mismanaged on the land. And then from there, uh, weather comes into play, and that would be like wind and rain and you know actions to get the, the waste actually into a waterway or into the ocean. I, I was going to actually ask about that because this is Weather Geeks. And so we, we take all types of angles on weather and climate on the podcast. And so... Uh, 
I, I really was wanting to get into sort of what is sort of the, or if any, are there any weather and or climate angles to any of this? For sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So really, that's one of the ways that it's transported. And we see pulse events when we see rain events in terms of the quantity of, of trash entering the ocean and the quantity of plastic. Um, and I mean, so the weather, absolutely. It's it's basically the mechanism of how it can get into the ocean other than someone throwing it, you know, directly. Sure. So, so wind blown and then also from flooding that maybe put into water. Exactly. Waterways. Yeah. And just even stormwater events. Okay. So, I mean, the mismanaged waste is often on the roadways and that's where our water runs, even if it's not a flood event and right. into our stormwater systems, which usually drain directly to creeks. Right. Sometimes they go to the wastewater, but not very often. They often drain to creeks. Sometimes there's these trash interceptors, um, but those definitely have to be monitored because we've seen those sort of even overflow. And so then a catchment becomes sort of almost even a source. Right. Um, so it, it definitely plays a role. Now, climate, uh, we, there was a new paper that just came out that was showing that there was methane being generated from this plastic. And that was sort of one of the first sort of direct ties to potentially like an off-gassing, um, you know, contribution. But I think we know that plastic is carbon. It's not supposed to be breaking down uh, in the environment, but we are putting a lot of carbon in places where it wasn't like floating on top of the ocean. So we don't know. Right. So this is still one of those sort of frontier research problems. Absolutely. I imagine. And methane, as you heard her mention, is a greenhouse gas and is actually significantly more potent as a greenhouse trapping gas, like gas than, say, carbon dioxide by about 20 times. But I want to get back to something you mentioned about sources on land. And I'm, I'm yep. looking at a graphic here, mm -hmm. uh, plastic waste inputs from land into the ocean and there are these preferred so so sort of w just walk us through sort of what the sources actually are and their relative contributions here mm -hmm. yeah so um so this this definitely describes that mismanaged waste that i was talking about um but the the first quantity that we look at is the quantity of plastic that's produced in the first place because that definitely relates to how much we're using and then that directly relates to how much actually ends up in the waste stream. Um, so that quantity of plastic has been increasing really rapidly. Um, and we now know as of a publication we did last year in 2017 that there's been 8.3 billion metric tons of plastic produced since we started recording that in 1950. Wow. wow. So because a lot of that is used for packaging, we now we also know that six about 6.4 billion, billion metric tons billion. has become waste. With a B. Right. Wow. So we've had to manage that waste. And sort of those of us in the waste management space has been like this new material that has quickly come. And, and what happened is we just couldn't, you know, develop the infrastructure or, you know, handle that quantity of waste coming or quantity and change in waste coming so quickly. Um, so that's what we've seen sort of this, this system that couldn't handle that. And so we see it leaking out. And now in this analysis, we looked at these 192 countries. And of course, we saw then these influencing factors where we saw leakage are like rapidly developing middle income countries where the infrastructure for managing this waste collection, um, you know, disposal are just not developed and uh, are, are lagging behind that economic development where people are consuming more and more packaged goods. Right. Now, Something that you've mentioned a few times as we've had this discussion is metric tons. And when we have a flood, for example, Hurricane Harvey or even recently with Hurricane Lane in Hawaii, oftentimes you'll see people like myself and others try to say, well, that, that equates that 36 inches of rainfall equates to this million bathtub gallons. Yep. Do you have a way of sort of putting that in context, what yeah. metric tons are for the public? I think um, what's really nice to 
to understand when we're talking about this plastic is actually individual items don't weigh very much. So there's a lot of volume, um, but not a lot of mass. And so this 8 million metric tons, I'd like to describe what that is, what that would look like. Yes, please. Right. So if you and I and, and everybody in the world were standing along the coastline, the entire coastline of the world, uh, standing hand to hand, we each take up about a foot of space. Um, and we're looking out at the ocean, each one in front of us would have five grocery size bags filled with plastic. Wow. And that's what we estimate is going into the ocean every year. Wow. So that's oh how you can imagine it. Now, which raises another question that I have. How do you do this? How do you measure it? I mean, how, I mean, how do you know? I mean, I mean, obviously you're not capturing every single piece of plastic. You're not sampling it. Right. In the same way that, for example, we're not sampling every single inch of rain that right. drops. So right. what, what are your methods? So this was, um, so out of this international working group at NCs, this is a data synthesis project. So we were looking at collecting data from all of these countries around the world um, and then make kind of building this model and making this estimate. And so in those countries, they had measured how much waste people have produced. Um, again, how much of that is plastic. And then this mismanagement number is based upon inadequate infrastructure. And what we did for that is looked at places that um, either were using a dump type situation and basically just really lacking in that collection and disposal infrastructure. Um, and then we built a statistic model to predict where we didn't have data because not every country has collected this data. And this is a problem in this work because it is challenging or people hadn't really been paying attention to it before. So people hadn't been collecting this data. Right. So kind of even coming out of this paper is the fact that people need to be trying to collect this data and understand it better um, to improve the kind of estimates as this. This is the first of its kind. We use best available data, but certainly it could be improved. And, and, and I'm just curious and the answer to this may be no, it's not possible at all. But are there any ways to kind of account, do any accounting using remote sensing or other ways that where you can kind of blur the borders, if you will? Yeah, no, that's a that is a great question because this, you know, it, it collecting this data, it's extensive. So there's been a couple ways to kind of incorporate technology, um, and we have looked at either remote sensing, satellite imagery, you know, and then there's um, there's a project where they're taking those images and then sort of crowdsourcing training uh, machine learning and AI to identify where's plastic. And then, you know, um, so that could work. That could improve some, kind of our, our actual mismanaged waste numbers. And that's pretty much at the cutting edge. And I'm very interested in that. Um, what we've also done at the University of Georgia is people have been doing cleanups for many years, over 30 years, the International Coastal Cleanup with the Ocean Conservancy has been happening. Um, and that has been usually written on data cards. And this was back when I was actually starting this work. Um, I was at the University of New Hampshire before Georgia, um, but I've been at Georgia nine years now. And um, we were like, can, can we use some technology here? And when smartphones came out, we thought, well, we can make an app for collecting this data. And then it's actually entered at the same time people are collecting it. Because there was this huge lag between all these data cards that then had to be entered and then analyzed. So now we have immediate feedback and we've crowdsourced people all over the world who are going out and telling us where they're finding litter, picking it up. And then that data, we can, um, you know, we, we're getting 
data in every single day from and, people. And, and this this app's available. What's it called and where pe- where can people get it? Yeah. Um, so it's called Marine Debris Tracker. Okay. Um, it was funded by the NOAA Marine Debris Program. So hence, hence the name. But it's really can be used to log litter anywhere in the world. So it's okay to be inland. One of our, our largest uh, single users is in Missouri, um, along the Missouri River. So actually in Nebraska. But um, and that's that's important because rivers are actually very important conduits um, for getting this material to the ocean. So Marine Debris Tracker, it's free. Um, be part of a you know a great citizen science program. Even just opportunistically walking you know from your car to your work or wherever, you can tell us um, and pick up the litter if you can because that helps solve this problem. So track it in Marine Front. Yeah, then pick it and up. then just yeah yeah tell <laughs> yeah. us what you see when you pick it up. Just tell us what you actually picked up. And I want to ask you about this because in, in meteorology we actually do have quite a bit of crowdsourcing activities. We, we have things like Coco Ross mm-hmm. and the Mping where people are sort of noting where it's raining. Actually, a colleague and I uh, are actually exploring something called air casting now for air quality. What yeah. are your thoughts on crowdsourcing? Because there are some people who say, well, it's nice. Coco Ross, rain gauge measurements, bah, the quality control and the reliability. But I mean, I, I find that there is use. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I, I definitely think there's use. Um, and, and being uh, funded by no, I've been in citizen science programs that have included those weather programs as well, and they're excellent. And I think, so the data, as long as you get enough of it, so yeah, this might be not the highest quality. We know this is opportunistic observations, but if you get enough of them, we've had over 1.3 million items reported, um, then you can actually do something with the data. Some of that bias and some of those things kind of, they, they work themselves out when you have a lot of data. Also, you raise awareness. So people just doing this activity who are interested in science, um, and, you know, you can get school groups who are interested. And so you, you raise a level of, I think, awareness and appreciation for science. So I think there's other positives than it has to be, you know, the highest quality scientific data. Um, but I think I'm surprised at what we actually can do with the data that's coming in, too. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I actually have the pleasure today to have a colleague of mine from the University of Georgia, Dr. Jenna Jam, back here. And we're trash talking, but not in the way that you might think. We're talking about a very serious problem for planet Earth, the only planet we have. There's no plan B planet, as you often hear me say. And, you know, Jenna and her colleagues have been looking at this notion of plastic waste in the oceans, how much is coming from land. And she's literally one of the top experts in the world, just to establish some of her credentials. She's also a National Geographic Explorer. She's testified before Congress. She's all over the world. She's in the media. So we're talking to someone that knows this topic. And I want to, this is a question that, you know, you and I have talked about personally as just colleagues. Do you deal with trolls in this? (laughs) um, You're in social media. You're active in 
by the way, tell us where, where you are on social media so people sure. can follow you. And then do you deal with people that have these sort of alternative theories or ideological perspectives on what you do? Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter at Jambic Research, and um, I have a professional professional Facebook page as well, which is pretty easy to find, uh, Jenna Jambic there. And um, also our mobile app, Marine Debris Tracker, is at Debris Tracker, and they have a bigger following than me go so get, far. Go, but, go get that. If you're listening, yeah. if you're not driving or walking on the treadmill right now, go get that, that Debris Tracker, and let's help out the earth. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, th- this topic, it's, you know, it, at least this is something visible. So, you know, mismanaged trash and plastic ending up in the ocean is is quite visible. And so I think there, and there also is pretty much an agreement, you know, we don't want plastic into the ocean. Where we do get some disagreement um, on this is, is maybe how you go about doing that. Um, and so that would be sort of where I would see maybe some negative discourse within social media. So but it's, it's about what you do about it. That's the issue yeah, where we it's deal a bit, with it's climate a, change. I know. It's a bit, yeah. The solution space. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. People, that's where the that's where the discourse, the yeah. discord is. I would say. Yeah, um, and interestingly enough, the newest uh, sort of movement with straws has been a bit more controversial than oh, I imagined. Let's, let's you want to? Let's you go wanna, there. You want to go there? Let's go there. So yeah, so straws. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's sort of been this real movement towards sort of the elimination of plastic straws. Right. I, I think even some colleagues of ours at UGA are testing out a new biodegradable straw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, my yeah, that's my colleague at the New Materials yeah. Institute. They're gonna um, use PHA, which is um, a biodegradable polymer that's not quite available on the market yet. So it's different than this PLA, which is corn based and is compostable. So there's a lot of nuances there to this biodegradability. But yeah, so the the straws. I mean, it raises a lot of awareness, and it's is if it's something that you don't need. But certainly, there are people in the disabled community, and you know, elders, and I mean, there are people that do need straws, and well, for my, some my reason, wife plastic. Says she needs to drink. She has very sensitive teeth, yeah. and she can't drink liquid with ice without a straw. But I was like, and you some, know, <laughs> yeah, it's bad well, for us. <laughs> well, and sometimes you know, and the metal straws do get cold. So if you have temperature sensitivity, so I think it's more about those of us that don't necessarily need it. Can we think about? It? But my kids love straws. I have kids same age, same ages, at least your youngest son. Sure. And um, and we, you know, they like straws. So we have metal straws at the house that they can use. And um, and I think it's more about being able to ask for one if you need one. But yes, there have been bans as well. And, and it's just, it's just gotten a bit more controversial than I think it sort of needs to. Does it make a difference? That's the other question I get. Because remember, we talked about that 8 million metric tons. What do straws really contribute? They weigh so little. But the numbers of them are so great. And so we have to think that mass is not the only metric. Weight is not the only metric for measuring this issue. Numbers count, volume, as I kind of said, surface area even. So those things, you know, sort of matter. And and of course, if you take one metric, it's going to look a little bit differently. But I think all in all, it's a positive to have this awareness raised. Oh, I know personally something I've been doing for many years now and my kids, or at least my son has sort of adopted the practice is when I go to a fast food restaurant, I don't take a plastic lid or a straw. Right. Yeah, because it's just um, more plastic in the in the waste there. Yeah, and if it's a percentage of what we produce, 
then if we can lower sort of what we're generating for waste, then it w- our leakage should be less. Absolutely. What about, uh, I saw something recently about balloons. Our mm-hmm. good friend, mutual friend, Seth Bornstein yes. of AP it was talking about the sort of this notion of the big balloon releases that we see that yeah. people love. Uh, but, you know, that's a hazard and that's uh, for the ecosystem, but also it's more plastic and, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, especially when you're, you know, purposefully letting it go yeah. and knowing it's going to come down somewhere. Um, interestingly enough, our, our property near Athens, we end up with a lot of balloons. I don't know if we're in. And this is another weather thing. Sure. Like, why are they falling out? Yeah. You know, we find well, them it might be an in our study creek. For undergraduate study here for <laughs> you know, in our creek, and and uh, my husband when he's like mowing the grass and whatnot, he's like, I found another balloon. So, um, and the strings associated with them, these are all all things that in our environment, then once it, it lands, are not good because the animals interact with it and um, they they cause issues. So again, maybe not a lot of mass. Maybe I don't you know know how many balloon releases happen. Um, I'm pretty excited for our, our, our university down the road, Clemson, who has now said they're not going to do their big balloon race that they normally do. And I think that's good. There's other ways you can celebrate and that that won't potentially harm, you know, Very animals good. in the ecosystem. Yeah, it's, you know, with anything, it's about incremental change and pattern changes and, 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 and also what you're so good at getting the message out. Now, I want to kind of circle back to the study and some of the research you've done. Are is there a way to understand whether there are certain countries or places that are culprits, worse culprits than others at, at sort of the plastic into the ocean? So, um, so yeah, so I kind of talked about some of the influencing factors, and that's really what we saw with this work. It, it was a snapshot in time. So I always like to kind of say this, if you think about this analysis on us, our, our waste management rules and regulations weren't passed until 76. So even I, as a kid, you know, took my waste to like a dump situation, right? right? So it's very different in the U.S. We, of course, changed that. Um, but so there's countries that this is lagging behind. I've been traveling a lot. Um, so I also have a position with the U.S. State Department in their International Informational Speakers Program. And through that work, I've traveled a lot to Southeast Asia, um, to South Africa. And so basically where we have seen rapid population growth and this rapid economic growth is kind of where we're where we're seeing this leakage. But it changes, right? Because that's all changing. And, and we wrote a paper, a uh, white paper on the continent of Africa to say, you know, what is going to be happening here in the near future. Um, So, yeah, so like Philippines, Indonesia, Japan, Vietnam um, are all places that I've that I've been to talk about this issue with the State Department. How are they receiving sort of the the warnings or the 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 information? Or I mean, is is this changing thought? Is it affecting policy change from what your lens? Yeah. Um, so right away, you know, when some of the research came out, um, Indonesia created a marine debris action plan and, um, they're planning on an aggressive reduction policy. We've seen, uh, resources go towards, uh, implementing solid waste management infrastructure. Um, USAID actually created a program in countries that were in our research uh, results to uh, give funding again for developing waste management infrastructure. Um, so, a lot of people, you know, kind of quickly reacted. And I think now we're sort of looking at what are going to be the the best bang for your buck solutions. And, right. and, and it's really an integrated approach. 
like climate issues. Um, it's not just one. Absolutely. So, uh, we, so it's not going to take one country that just becomes uh, sort of the, the pinnacle of the right thing to do. It really takes everyone. It takes everyone and a, a lot of different solutions in there. It's not just waste management okay. because we need to also probably look and see, do we need product redesign? Do we need alternative materials? Um, and what about reduction? You know, some places already are producing not that much waste per person in the U.S. We tend to do at least three, sometimes four times more as these countries in Southeast Asia. So we could probably reduce our waste generation some. Well, and that was actually one of the things. I mean, I mean you, you, the United States didn't kind of pop up on the worst uh, list there, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, we're number but, 20. But we're, we're, we're certainly just our volume. I'm, I'm sure we're an, a big influencer. What's going on from your lens that you see policy-wise or community-active-wise in terms of the U.S. That yeah. to improve this? That's a great question. Um, so there's actually an act in Congress called the Save Our Seas Act. Um, it passed the Senate un- unanimous, or um, I say favorably, so bipartisan support, which is amazing. So the, the Senate hearing that I testified at was very friendly in terms of both Democrats and Republicans and supporting I'm str- this I'm issue. I'm struggling to understand why it wouldn't be, have bipartisan yeah. well, support. I but mean, I'm sure it has yeah. some of those types of things well, like we see in climate. It's not cool. I mean, it's definitely not the same. We, ha- we do have this support, Good. which is great because there's not very many issues right now at the table where you do have that. Right. So I think that's been then a positive here and then pass the House with some slight changes. So it's actually back to the Senate now for another approval. But so that's great at the federal level we've seen. um, And that tells the State Department also to step up some more in terms of the international work, which I know a lot of this relates to to these international issues. Um, But also we've seen a lot of states and communities do things. The state of California has looked at, um, well, they banned plastic bags. And, um, you know, there's there's more nuances than just to plastic bags being littered. They also are really hard to challenge in our waste or manage in our waste management stream. They gum up the systems in our recycling facilities if people put them in their recycle bin. So so, so yeah. what's your thought on recycling since you bring that up? I mean, because it seems yep. to be one of these things that has it's become a little bit murkier than perhaps it would be. Yeah. Um, so, and that was kind of our most recent paper, too. We were looking at the export of our recycled material, specifically the plastic um, material meant for recycling to China. And then China said, we're not taking this material anymore. So what you're seeing in a lot of this, uh, in a lot of the industry in these situations is sort of the, the you know, the upstream consequences from that here. Um, And it really made us think, what do we need to do to improve our recycling system if we were having to ship all of this um, to China? Because we just couldn't get it clean enough for the markets here. Um, And there wasn't even markets for some of the plastic materials. So do we need to look at changing upstream design so we are using the polymers that have markets here and, you know, designing things so that they hold their value? It's hard. The recycling... um, it's, it's having challenges. It's not totally broken, but they're definitely having challenges. I encourage people to recycle because the more material that's there, the more economically, uh, you know, you have the economics of scale. So don't stop recycling. Um, but we we do need to, to look at how we can do things um, a little bit differently so we have more high value and commodities. I, and the reason I asked that question is because even in my own county that I live in here in Georgia, they recently stopped accepting glass. 
And so at not first surprised. I was a little bit um, sort of upset about that. But then I started looking into it a little bit more. Yeah. It sounds like it's not, you know, there's some challenges there. There is. So in so in these recycling facilities, we have we uh, we design them. There's a lot of conveyor belts and screens. And, um, you know, so we, we basically design these systems to mechanically separate all the recyclables that you can put into one bin to make it super easy for us at the household. But then there are the engineers, we have to design a lot of things. And glass tends to break and it can contaminate the paper stream and then we also have the labels on the glass then then the glass stream isn't very clean and it just doesn't have any value and it's very heavy to transport so any trucks driving I mean there's all kinds of things with the glass but it's also one of the materials that we sort of you know, it's historic and we sort of love it for the applications that it's been in. It's made from sand, you know, and it's not plastic. So, you know, there's a lot of people that like it and why can't we recycle it? And it's just, it's hard with the system as it is designed right now. Um, I know there was like a kid in Texas who decided that his, his community stopped collecting glass. So he started collecting it himself and was just like, well, we can, you know, maybe do this. And if you do things separate like that, then it has a higher value. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. To the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard talking to Dr. Jenna Jamback, and we're both from the University of Georgia. And you brought along a bag with you today, and I, I, I know did. I know that you were on uh, our our sister st- uh, program AMHQ on the Weather Channel this morning. What are some of the things in that bag that we're finding in the ocean? Yeah, so I brought a bag of trash um, and uh, marine debris that we actually uh, have found. So there are straws and food wrappers, um, toys. There was a flip-flop in there, broken sunglasses, um, cigarette butts, plastic bottles, lots of bottle caps. Wow. Yeah. So it's just an array of things. Uh, now, you talk about some of the things, and I'm. Oh, here's a contact you're, case. You're holding up, she's holding up literally in front of me right now, and I, I see all of the things that she mentioned contact case, applesauce, um, wrappers, um, just all types of things. And what about the sizes? Because you showed me some things earlier, and you've got a little jar here, and it just has really small particles in, in a little sort of jar. Uh, the jar is probably about. Um, uh, an inch and a half, two inches in size uh, and length. What's the implication of the size of the different things you're finding? So what happens is that when the plastic enters the environment, it's exposed um, to sunlight and uh, even like wind and wave action. And the plastic, then the polymer sort of breaks down, it becomes brittle. And then it fragments into these smaller and smaller pieces, eventually about the size of a pencil eraser um, is where we get to the level that we call microplastic. Um, So we have these big pieces that break down into these small pieces. And that means that then smaller and smaller animals, and especially like you can see those little round ones here, those are actually the pre-production pellets. So those are actually what they ship around the world. That's how plastic is shipped as these tiny little... pellets are about the size mm-hmm. of a little BB or pellet or maybe mm-hmm. a little sleet pellet for the Weather Geeks listeners. And so these um, 
these sometimes leak out, and and so these end up in our environment uh, as well. And those are the the pre production pellets. So the, those actually look like things that fish like to eat. Um, and so in many of these cases, animals get curious. We also even know that there's microbes that colonize the plastic that that give off an odor of food to birds so that gives them the you know the sense that this is actually food to eat and so then they eat that and so we just know that animals um, around the world are consuming this seabirds are one of the the main species that really get impacted because they come down on the water and they you know skim the top and that's where this pla- some of this plastic is floating and I was going to ask you about that because you you see these hor- horrific pictures of you know marine life entangled in pl- trash or you know, animals, whales are ingesting this. The question I have, because we deal with this in the weather and climate world, we have critics that say we sort of are using exaggeration or hyperbole or scare tactics. Uh, oh, Greenland's not really melting or, oh, that Hurricane Harvey's not going to be that bad. You just want ratings. Do you deal with people that say, oh, pictures like that are just, um, you know, inflated or just hyperbole or is it that bad? Well, so I think the, those pictures are actual events that are happening. Absolutely. And so the, for that individual, you know, they, you know, in some cases, the, those birds are dying. The the actual, um, you know, parent albatrosses are bringing back plastic and feeding it to their chicks. Um, the whales are consuming the plastic bags. But certainly there's actual scientific research going on to say, you know, and of course at this, at the ecosystem and animal level, you have sort of these individual impacts that can be documented and then you kind of go up the scale. Is there actually an impact to a population or a species and things like that? And so um, folks are still kind of working on those. But we know at some of these cellular level even and some of these various um, levels in these e- ecosystems that we're seeing some impacts. But, um, you know, this is really kind of a new new research field that has really taken off recently. So kind of bringing all hands on deck to figure out what these impacts are is really the cutting edge. And then, of course, that goes into the potential impact to humans as well. Absolutely. Now, sort of rounding out the discussion here, and it's been such a great discussion with Dr. Jenner Jim back. Okay, what do we do? Are there any alternatives to plastic? So um, there are alternatives. I mean, what we used to use before plastic as well as now, we're developing at the New Materials Institute at the University of Georgia, um, looking at biodegradable polymers, because in some cases that, you know, some of the advantages of plastic um, are there. It's light. It's, you know, moldable. I mean, all the all the reasons that we use it for so many things. It's a great material, but we just need to watch sort of where and when we use it and how we manage it. And that's what we really hadn't thought about before. But certainly um, reusable items too, right? So something that might even be plastic, but reusable, as long as you're not sort of disposing of many things, that can be a way to go as well. What about recapture? Can we recapture? Can we just get these giant sweepers? I mean, is that just pie yeah. in the sky type stuff? Well, just because the ocean is 70% of our planet and how much is out there. And, and even if you if you look at the graphic we had, we estimated this 8 million metric tons going in, but only floating, you know, a quarter of a million. Um, so because some of the plastic sinks sure. and it ends up, you know, there's all these sorts of sinks. So actually going out and sort of cleaning up. Uh, the surface of the ocean is is a fairly small fraction so of this. Right. However, right. fishing gear is one thing that does enter the ocean and um, it's designed to kill. So that's something that when it's in the ocean, it's like, okay, we should probably get that out. But 
trying to vacuum up these small particles, um, you know, is kind of like mopping the floor of your bathroom while your tap is on. We really kind of want to turn off that tap and keep it from going right. in in that's, the first that's, place. That's a great analogy. So you're, I mean, you're one of the top researchers in the world, top scholars on this topic. What, where, where are you headed next with your own research? What's next for you? Yeah. Um, so I'm continuing to work with the State Department, sort of expanding my work with National Geographic um, around the world and actually now starting to look at some of these more pulse events and looking at catastrophic events and the type of debris that's um, made with that as well. You know, and when you say pulse events, you mean sort of a, a, fl- a flash Yeah, like, or, well, or, yeah, or, yeah. So the, the, the stormwater events, okay. yeah. Yeah, and so that's kind of how we describe those. What so, about, what about sort of these large episodic events like a hurricane? Maria in Puerto Rico. Right. So exactly. That's yeah. that's actually where my research is going next really? to look at. Um, yeah. And so we call them sort of catastrophic events in terms of the hurricanes, the tsunami. We know that the tsunami in Japan created um, a large amount of debris, about 5 million tons and about oh. 1 million ended up floating across um, and all the way across over to the U.S. So wow. that that has that can have an impact as well, and we want to understand you know, all these sources, and so that's my next source. And it, to me, this sounds like a fascinating frontier area of both not only ivory tower research, but this is research that affects society. So we are, thank you for what you're doing. How does some young scholar or kid that's listening to this podcast? What do they do if they want to do what you're doing? Oh, um, yeah, that would be very exciting to, you know, inspire people to, to kind of go into this field. And it's great because it's interdisciplinary. So, yeah, I'm an environmental engineer, but you could be an oceanographer. You could be a marine biologist. You could be a product designer, a material scientist, um, economist. We've got uh, I just met a woman a professor from Berkeley who's a political scientist then looking at sort of the potential international laws and regulations that we could have on this. So there's just about every discipline. We also need people in media and design to, you know, help design awareness campaigns. And it's a great interdisciplinary field. So just about anybody. I'm going to give you the floor for sort of the final thoughts here. You're talking to the world, literally. (laughs) What would you say? Um, Well, my goal kind of heading into solid waste initially was kind of to change the paradigm and the thought of it and to think of this as materials management and to make people kind of be okay and aware of the waste that we're generating. I think we've done a great job of designing and getting it away and everyone just wants to get it to the curb. But I think if we can bring some of that awareness back to the waste that we're generating every day, um, that can help solve this problem and and just even be grateful for all the people that work on this issue. You know, as I was getting ready for the TV, we we're chatting and I was like, can you imagine if no one was collecting our waste, if we didn't have this system, you know, what it would be like and point. just appreciating all the people that do this around the world um, and then figuring out, you know, how to, um, you know, keep plastic out of the ocean. We, we all can make a difference. Yeah. And I, I want to end it there. I, I think Dr. Jambeck is just a classic example. And I, I like to talk about this of where research and development is actually aiding and benefiting society. I think a lot of times people see universities and research organizations as these highbrow ivory tower organizations. I, I think if, as you've listened to Dr. Jambeck today, you see that this work matters to you, your kids' lives and our future. So I want to end it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and this has been the Weather Geeks Podcast.